Good morning. You can have a seat. Good job uh, meeting other people this morning. So my name is Angela. Uh, I am on staff here. Brad is going to be giving the message in a few minutes, but we're going to have a little Lenten check-in, okay? Think of it as like a little fireside chat with your friend Angela. So this is the second week of Lent. And if you are newish here, we are inviting you to participate in the journey towards Easter that is called Lent through two practices. The first is to read a devotional together as a community. If you uh, haven't been around, you may have uh, gotten one of these at the door. If you've been around, hopefully this is like the third Sunday we've passed this out. Um, you have it, or you're, you're following along online. So this is a devotional put together uh, by Michelle Manley with uh, contributions from various staff. And it's a great little devotional. And I like to think of it as a way that we get to know Jesus, right? Um, as we are walking towards Easter, it's good to know who is Jesus, even if we, whether you're, you're learning about him for the first time or you've known him for a while, just to see how did he interact with people? How did he respond? If we want to be like Jesus, we got to kind of know who he is and see what he did. So there is scripture, there is some music, there's some um, art, great way for you to get to know Jesus. The second way I like to think of it is to experience Jesus very physically, very practically through a series of three fasts. Now, some people at Lent fast for one thing the entire 40 days. And if that is you, I commend you. This year, the river decided we're going to break it into three different fasts, each one being about two weeks, just to kind of experience. Because sometimes there are different things that trigger us, right? So the first fast will be a partial food fast. That's what we're on right now. Then we're going to do a media fast. And the last one is a fast from harsh words. So that's going to be quite the doozy there. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about fasting just because of the two, I think fasting's a little harder, right? Like devotional, yeah, we can read something for three minutes a day or 20 minutes. But fasting requires a little bit more intentionality. It's a little kind of hits you, like, am I going to do this or not, right? And I, I've been in a, a couple settings this week where people are like, I just don't want to do it, right? <laughs> like, I just, well, or I grew up Catholic, and I have such hard associations with it. Or I thought it was a Catholic thing. I don't know why I have to do it, right? Um, and so I want to talk a little bit because I can relate. I can relate to all of you. Well, not the growing up Catholic. I didn't actually grow up with any um, uh, Christian background. I didn't, I didn't grow up as a Christian. So when I became a Christian later in my teen years, I started attending a church. It was a great church, but they didn't talk about fasting at all, let alone Lent, right? Um, and then I started coming to the river, and our founding pastor at the time talked about, he encouraged people to Lent on Good Friday, and he encouraged us to do a whole food fast on Good Friday. And at the time, I was a young adult, like some of you, and I was curious, right? I didn't know much other than like, oh, the pastor said to do it. And if you look in the Bible, all the holy people fast, right? It's a way to focus themselves. So I was like, well, I want to try it. And um, let me tell you, folks, it was not easy, <laughs> right? Okay, fasting for food for a whole day. I don't, if you haven't done it, I don't know if that's the, the first place to start. But I just realized that like, I'm generally pretty well-mannered. I have, um, I'm not super emotional about things. But after like the second meal where I had to fast, I got a little cranky and irritable. And, you know, I think they call it hangry now. Um, and I wasn't the nicest version of myself. And it came out towards the people I love or even the people that I just would see. 
And I was like, this doesn't feel good, right? Like, this is supposed to be this holy pursuit. I don't think I'm, I'm getting anything out of it. And they say, like, oh, we'll just turn your attention to God and pray. And I was like, I don't really feel like praying right now. I feel like eating a sandwich, right? Um, but I stuck through it because I like to think of myself as a disciplined person. And then I got to Good Friday, and when we hear about Jesus and his sacrifice, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, maybe that's the point. I needed to feel that pain to just get a little glimmer of Jesus' pain, right? And then we took communion, and wow, that cracker never tasted so good. And it reminded me, like, okay, okay, God, okay, Jesus, I want you to sustain me. So fast forward 15, 20 years, I've fasted on different occasions, and I can say I still don't love it, right? Like when every Lent comes around, it's not like, oh, yay, I love Lent, let's fast. It's like, no, I don't love fasting. I love the change I see in myself. I love what it does for me, right? It's not a practice that we do every day, but when we do it, it has a spiritual effect that I can say not any other spiritual practice has had on me. And um, as a family this year, you know, because we're doing the, uh, the partial food fast, we had to talk about what that meant for us as a family. And we decided we were going to give up sweets, right? And I've had to remind my 12-year-old son why we do it. And I've had to remind myself why we do it as I talk to him, right? And one of it is just the legalism of it, right? The other day, he's like, does a milkshake count as a sweet? I'm like, mm, I think that one counts. He's like, how about a Tic Tac? I'm like, Tic Tac is a mint. You can have that, right? I'm going to have one too. Um, and, and I had to tell him, you know, son, in the end, it's not the legalism. It's not the specific. It's the heart, right? In a way, the sacrifice empties us in a way that nothing else can and really does bring us to Jesus. And I had to share my own experience. I don't love doing this, but I'm doing it with you and with dad and as a community because all relationships require some sacrifice, don't they? When you love someone, you are willing to do the things that will draw you close to them. So if I'm willing to do that for the people here on earth, why wouldn't I do that with Jesus? And so that's my fasting experience. If you have not started, it's not too late. We're only in the second week. And I would encourage you, maybe start with one day, right? Start with a one-day fast on something, and you might find like, okay, that wasn't too bad. Maybe I could do another day and another day. And before you know it, I... I think your life will be changed. Your heart will be changed. You will find out more things about yourself and from God that you wouldn't otherwise. Okay? So that's my encouragement. Now let's give it up for Brett. I have a friend that went on a long food fast once. And as the days went on, she kept making her smoothies thicker and thicker. <laughs> I want to know what Angela thinks about that. Is that... Is that it's just fruit. It's not, it's not, it's good. Um, supporting Angela's point, I want us to um, meditate on this brief quote from a British Christian thinker named N.T. Wright, Nicholas Tom Wright. I don't know why British people like to, like, they're going with their initials. But anyway, he said, Lent is a time for discipline, for confession, for honesty. Not because God is mean, or fault-finding, or finger-pointing, but because he wants us to know the joy of being cleaned out, ready for all of the good things that he now has in store for us. So as we begin our time today, I want to proclaim the good news of the God who has great things 
in store for us all and who intends to impart greater joy into our lives by cleansing us if we dare to welcome him to come close to cleanse us. And maybe that's the question that I have for us, is would you trust him enough to let him cleanse you? That's the basic point of the text that we're in today. John chapter 13 is a turning point in the Gospel of John. Early on, uh, for 12 chapters, you see Jesus going back and forth between being with the crowds, preaching to the crowds, healing people and feeding them, and draw back and have time alone with God, and then with his 12 disciples, his 12 closest followers, and he'd take them back out. But beginning in verse uh, chapter 13, uh, we see just Jesus with his 12 friends, with his students. And it goes on from chapter 12 to 13 to 14 to 15 to 16 and 17. Just the download of what he most wants his disciples to know before he returns to the Father in heaven. This is what it says in verse 1. It says, Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already decided that Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, would betray Jesus. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, that he had come from God and he was going to God, Jesus got up from supper, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, one of his three closest friends, star pupil. Simon says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, you do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head as well. Simon's going back and forth on how he's really going to go about this whole thing. And Jesus says to him, one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you for he knew who was to betray him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. There's a little bit more of the story to read, but I'll just say a few things here. This scene is filled with immense tension. I wonder if you can think of somebody who's offended you, somebody who's betrayed your trust. What does it feel like to be in a room with them? What would it feel like to be at a dinner table with them? That's what's going on in this room. Betrayal is in the air. The prince of darkness, the devil, has his hooks in Judas. And Jesus knows it. And yet he's sharing a meal with him. The text tells us that it's the time of the Passover. 
the Passover was, in a sense, uh, a revolution. You know, it, this was the, the Old Testament celebration of how it was that when God's people were enslaved in Egypt for four centuries, that God heard their cries and sent them a deliverer, this man named Moses, who would set them free from their Egyptian oppressors. And at this time, God's people are suffering under the oppression of the Romans. They're being taxed. They're being abused. And they, like the Egyptians long ago, are crying out to the God who could hear their voice, crying out for a liberator who would come to set them free and overthrow these unclean oppressors. Jesus presents himself to his disciples as that liberator, but as one who would come to liberate in a way that was unimaginable to them. So in the midst of this intense tension, in the midst, in the midst of what would have been incredibly complex feelings, it says that Jesus gets up from the table. He takes out his outer garment, wraps himself with a towel, and begins to wash his disciples' feet been around the church at all, if you're a reader of the New Testament texts, or even if you're not, you probably gain some sense that it's not a popular job to be washing people's dirty, stinky feet. And in that culture, in fact, it was the job that was designated for the person of the lowest rank. It was designated to the youngest person in the room. And in this story, what we see is that nobody is willing to wear that designation. No one in this story is willing to identify themselves as the servant of the lowest rank. Maybe you've seen pictures of uh, this setting where in the ancient world there are these low tables and people are sitting on the ground and their feet are next to the other person's head. You know, So they're in this incredibly awkward space where people can smell one another's feet and no one is willing to do anything about it except for Jesus. So Jesus gets up. He washes their feet. Peter objects, and he has this interaction with Jesus. And when all of that is through, Jesus gives this very clear teaching. So this is sort of interesting because there are stories, there are places where Jesus is content to give I don't know, kind of opaque, mysterious, terrible riddle type things that people don't understand, and he's willing to let them just wrestle with it. That's not the case here. He's getting ready to go back to the Father, and he's going to tell them straight. This is what he says in verse 12. It says, when he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had reclined again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And then he essentially says the same thing over and over again, like they didn't get it the first time, which apparently they didn't. He says in verse 15, For I have set you an example, that you also should do as I have done to you. 
very truly, this is sort of the ultimate like underscore highlight, very truly I tell you, slaves are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. Now, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Do you know what I have done for you, Jesus says? I don't know how you'd articulate it. Maybe we could say he's clarified the org chart. He puts them in their place. He's clarified his core values. He has rebuked their pride, their comparisonitis, their elitism, and he's exhorted them to live as servants of the lowest rank. So often in the Christian world, we like to accomplish the work of God by being the smartest person in the room or the person who's got the best strategy or the person who's the most creative and all those things are perfectly fine things to be, but only if there is servant-like, humble love. That is the power on which the work of Jesus, the redemptive work of Jesus, the healing work of Jesus, that's the power of Jesus at work in the world. And what we see in this story is that can never be, no matter how smart we think we are, unless we allow ourselves to be washed and cleansed by him. Jesus said it so clearly in verse 8 to Simon Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. If you do not acknowledge yourself as a person who is dirty, you have no part with me. If you're not aware of how it is that you're vulnerable to the whispering of Satan, to the whispering of darkness, if you don't know your weak place, if you don't know the place in which you're most likely to trip and fall, you will find yourself increasingly separated from the person of Christ and from the work of Christ in the world. The heart of the spiritual journey in this Lenten season is fasting, as Angela said earlier, but it's fasting that leads to a heartfelt recognition that I am a person who needs to be cleansed. And until we come to that space, until we come to the place of recognition that we have a need that nobody else can address and that it's a profound and serious need, well, our Lenten fasting will become drudgery. It will become boring. It will become laborious. But worse yet, in the words of Jesus, we will find ourselves disconnected from him. We will have no part in him. This is a hard thing for we American spiritual pilgrims. We sort of live in what feels sometimes like a sinless society. Not sinless in the sense that there's no sin out there, but a sinless society in the sense that no one's really willing to recognize that there is sin in us. All of the sin that's out there is in someone else. And if they would just deal with their stuff, the world would be a better place. Yet it would be a good thing if those other people dealt with their sin. But the word of Jesus to his closest followers is that I want you to let me wash you. 
And when you have been cleansed by me thoroughly, when your life exudes the aroma of Christ in the world, well, then you will be in a position to be an agent of healing in this broken world. There are so many contexts in which we are so reluctant to acknowledge our sin, to confess our sin. Certainly the case in my social media feed, my Twitter feed is not a place of confession. <laughs> it's not a place where people know how to recognize I said something that was out of order. That never happens. And so it is also, even in churches, there can be sort of a veneer of niceness and feels like we're mostly okay when maybe we should say we are like everyone else in the world, people who, though baptized, though cleansed by Jesus in the journey of our lives and walking from here to there, from day to day, from hour to hour, we are people who think unclean things, who do unclean things, who inflict wounds on other people. We need to be cleansed. Until that happens, Lent is just a charade. It's just a long, wearying slog. So let's not let it be that. Let's enter into all that Jesus intends for us. In the words of N.T. Wright, the joy that comes from being cleansed so that we're ready to receive all of the good things that he has in store for us. That's what this wor morning's worship time is devoted to. You received a paper, piece of paper when you came in. Uh, if you didn't get one, there will be people who can pass one out to you. You're going to be, in a little bit, invited to write a prayer of confession. It's not a big, long list of all your sins. We don't have enough paper for that. <laughs> Some of you people have a lot of sin in your life. We all do. But I'm going to invite you to let the Holy Spirit speak about something that's central, something that really hangs you up, something that prevents you from receiving all of the good things that God wants to give to you. So let me create some categories here for us just to kind of help slow us down. And maybe we could sort of mentally and in a heart posture shift towards like a prayerful, reflective space. In what ways do you need to be cleansed by Jesus today? One category would be from unclean acts, from words that we have said to other people or about other people that are unclean, that are unholy. Unclean acts could be, obviously, behaviors, things that we've done, things that we've looked at on the internet. In what ways have you been involved in acts that have been the source of caking mud on you? Another category would be unclean thoughts. Jesus was quite clear in the Sermon on the Mount, his longest teaching, that sin is a little bit like a seed. You know, long before it has borne its bitter fruit, there is something that we are often thinking about. 
could be bitterness, could be anger, could be an experience you had of someone in which you think they were rude or unfair to you, and you play it over and over and over again in your mind in a way that is intensifying not your capacity to solve the problem, but is intensifying your anger, bitterness, and resentment at another person. Sometimes we are filled with unclean thoughts. And one of the benefits of meditation, of slowing down, is that our thoughts no longer swirl, but we can begin to identify them. That this thought lives and speaks in my mind and is polluting my heart. Are there unclean thoughts that have colonized your mind and your heart? And finally, I just want to say that it's possible that we need to be cleansed by Jesus from infected wounds. This is to say that sometimes sin means the things we do that are harmful to other people or are an offense to God. Sometimes the effect of sin in the world is that we have been harmed and that we are walking through life with a limp. We are bruised and unable to participate vigorously in the challenges of the world around us. It would have happened in the most physical of ways with disciples in the ancient world walking through a rocky terrain with their sandals. They would get dirty, but they also might get cut. And in this setting, I think we could imagine Jesus cleansing the wounds that they have accumulated, that they might be made well, that they might be made strong. I want to say that there are gross sins that we participate in. And there can be a little bit of an illusion in a church of attractive people like this. It's like, oh, people are nice here. People are attractive here. There are no gross sins here. That is a lie. Okay, that, that is a, a spiritual fantasy. The people of God, you and I, we are people who are prone to sins that are gross sins. And we are people here who can own up to that. And I want to say to you that this can be a season in which you get free, in which you could set a different trajectory, in which you could be cleansed, in which you could live as a whole new creation. And I also want to say that gross sins are not the only sins that are deadly to us. There are sins in our lives that hardly anyone else ever sees. There are sins that we are skilled enough in keeping hidden. And some of us are just charming enough to skate by without anyone ever asking us about those sins. I want to encourage us to welcome the presence of Christ to cleanse those as well. Before you write your confession, I'd like for us to meditate on this image that I found um, by someone I don't know. So all credit to the person that made this art piece. But just two points I'd like us to consider. This is a portrayal of Simon Peter as Jesus is washing his feet, his hands up, 
expressing his defensiveness. That verse where he says, you will never wash my feet. I wonder if you have an awareness of your own defense mechanisms, the ways in which you keep Jesus distant from you, the ways in which you keep other people distant from the things that most matter to you. Are you aware of that instinct? It exists in us all. Some years ago, I had a friend that um, I was at a retreat with, and after dinner was over, he pulled me aside outside and said, I thought what you did inside was an act of selfishness. I was hungry. They brought food on one platter, and I grabbed for the platter because dessert looked pretty good. And my friend pulled me aside outside and said, I thought that was selfish of you, and I wanted to ask you if you were aware of that. I look like Peter. <laughs> you know, like, hey, you know, it's not like I ate all the dessert, you know. Just ate one. I thought briefly about saying, do you know how selfish I think you are? Because I knew this person pretty well. And I know I'm biased here, but I'm pretty sure they're more selfish than me. Or I could have gone with a therapy defense. I'm a middle child learning to advocate for myself, you know. But in my heart, even though I felt all of those things, I didn't say any of them because in a moment, even though I was ashamed, I knew he was right. That I had acted in selfishness. Will we allow ourselves to be confronted with the ways in which we think and do unclean things? We can dare to do what would otherwise feel shameful to us because of the love of Christ. And I love the picture of how it seems like Jesus at Peter's feet kneeling there, and it seems to me that his head is on Peter's lap. You know, it says in verse 1 of the text we read that Jesus loved his own and that he loved them to the end. That's not saying that he loved them to the end of his life, though he did that. It's saying that this is the full extent of his love. This is the height of his love to come close and to restore you to what you were always intended to be. And for that to happen, you and I must be made clean. And he puts his head in Peter's lap, I think as a way of saying, I want you not merely to know about my love, I want you to feel my heartbeat. I want you to know the tenderness of my affection for you. Jesus loves us with unimaginable inexpressive love. So close your eyes for a moment before you, I invite you to write your confession. In the quiet of your heart, invite the Holy Spirit to move amongst you and to shine light into your heart. Once again, the invitation is not to list all of your sins, but to let the Lord speak to you about maybe just one root sin, one way in which he wants to 
untangle you from sin. One way in which he wants you to be clean, that you might know new joy. As you enter into this space, I want to read a brief prayer. Uh, It's an ancient prayer from the Orthodox Christian tradition. It says, Behold, child, Christ stands invisibly here to hear your confession. Be not ashamed, neither be afraid, and hide nothing from him. Fear not to tell him all that you have done so that you may receive forgiveness, so that you might be clean. Take heed, be careful, the prayer says, that having come to the place of the great physician, you do not depart unhealed. Don't depart unhealed today. The Spirit of God, move amongst your people. Draw us near to your most holy love and do the miracle of making unclean people clean and on the journey towards joy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. There should be pens uh, in the pocket of the chair in front of you. If you don't find one there, there are um, on top of the giving tables on both sides of the room. You can find one there. Take your time. Write your prayer. When you are done and settled, you're welcome at any time to come forward on both sides of the room. There are worship stations that we've created. There's one cylindrical vase. There's an invitation for you to put your confession there. It's a physical symbol of our desire to be a community of confession, to be a community that is honest, and to be a community that's clean. And then there are some cleansing bowls, and I would invite you to stir up in your imagination the presence of Christ who comes to make us clean. Enjoy the writing of your prayers, and then Kevin will come lead us in worship.